Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel 37, put this in its historical context, I remind you that Ezekiel was the prophet called to bring God's word to those in exile. He goes, he's brought himself to the river Kibar in the land of Babylon with a early band of exiles of young men and women who are taken 11 years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar having his general Nebuchadnezzar take them as hostages, as leverage if you will, and uh, warning to Zedekiah and his princes to pay the tribute levied upon you. And if you do not, I may well simply execute all the young men and women that we have brought into Babylon, Daniel and his three friends, undoubtedly princes of the house of of Judah, of of David, were also brought at that time. And Ezekiel was called to be a prophet. He himself is the son of a priest, as you will read in in chapter 1. is called to be a prophet five years after after he has been brought into Babylon. And you have the great vision of of the cherubims rearing up and wheels within wheels, and then it's laid upon Ezekiel to become a prophet, as the son of a priest to become a, a prophet like Samuel, if you will, to those who were in the exile. And then six years after he's called to be a prophet, 11 years after he's in exile, comes the destruction of Jerusalem. This passage is found following the destruction of Jerusalem, and those of Judah and Jerusalem have been brought to the river Kibar, the land of Babylon, by the hundreds of thousands. And so this prophecy and this vision with its prophecy takes place about 12 and a half years, I should say about a year and a half after the destruction of Jerusalem as we will, will find. And it's a word, of course, to give encouragement to those who were at the point of despair, Ezekiel himself included. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. And caused me to pass by them round about and behold there were very many in the open valley and lo they were very dry. And he said unto me son of man can these bones live? And I answered O Lord God thou knowest. Again he said unto me prophesy upon these bones and say unto them O ye dry bones hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. Notice that word there, I am Jehovah. That's, of course, important. In other words, I am the God of promise. And unlike you, when I make vows and oaths, I keep my word and oaths. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a shaking and the bones came together bone to his bone and when I beheld lo the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them above but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me prophesy unto the wind prophesy son of man and say to the wind thus saith the Lord God come from the four winds O breath and breathe upon these slain that they may live. 
who I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up out of your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. Notice, I am Jehovah, the God of promise, this unconditional covenant. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land, then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, saith the Lord. And then there follows a section here of verses which the prophet has to mention that northern and southern Israel, the, from the north, Joseph, Joseph here and Ephraim, represented by the two tribes, and then Judah will, will be brought together as two sticks so that they will be joined in union in time. So now we go to verse 22. Verse 22. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king to them all. They shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people and I will be their God. And now notice, and David... My servant shall be king over them. David, of course, is dead, but there's coming another David, the great son of David, of whom we heard this morning. And they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. They shall dwell in the land that I have given them, Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Thus far the reading of the prophetic word. And our text consists of verses 1 through 11 of Ezekiel 37. We're in the section of Ezekiel in which he's called to give encouragement to a nation and especially to a remnant of the nation that is at the point of despair. And they are at the point of despair, not simply because Jerusalem, the great city of David, has been demolished so that one, not one stone stands upon another stone with respect to his walls, and the temple itself has been burnt and destroyed as well, and the Ark of the Covenant is, is gone and lost. Not simply for that reason, though they grieve for that reason too, and not even for the slaughter that had occurred of the inhabitants, the citizens of the city of Jerusalem, young and old, male and female, down even to the 
little ones and the trail of tears that led from Jerusalem to Babylon as the heartless Chaldeans dashed the little ones against the stones because they would be a hindrance to the thousand-mile journey from the city, the Mala city, to the river Kibar. Not even that. It was more than that. In addition to that, this was the reason for their despair. They knew that the destruction and that those deaths had been the result and fruit of their own ungodliness, and they were the doing of the wrath of God against them, chastising them, punishing them with a severity, and they knew it was no more than they deserved for the abominations of which the nation had been guilty. They were destroyed, and are we now to be completely disinherited? We are a people without hope. And it's to that people who are now in exile, in the captivity, that Ezekiel is called to prophesy and to do that in connection with this vision of the dry bones. If you read the context of the chapters surrounding 37, you'll find mention again and again of God according to his covenant, meaning God according to his promises that he will yet, according to his own covenantal mercy, have relationships restored. He's a God who is yet going to gather from the remnant, if you will, preserve them and even gather them yet in their generations, children and children's children, and even to the point that he in his mercy will revive some who have gone astray and have been cut off and yet to be engrafted again. We read of that, of course, in the New Testament, if you recall. His mercy even includes that towards the Jews. But in addition to that, uh, a word that he's going to gather his people even out of the nations to which he has scattered his people. So the faithfulness of Jehovah God in contrast to the unfaithfulness of those who are called by his name. But not only does this passage magnify the faithfulness of Jehovah God with his power, but this is a passage that also magnifies the importance and the power of the preaching of the word. Ezekiel prophesy. But when the preaching, beloved, is underscored, then also the calling to attend to that preaching is underscored. You are my people, then you will show yourself as my people by attending to the words that are preached and declared. And what is to be preached as we're going to find the sovereign grace of God, but also repentance. It's in the context of a call to repentance as we're going to see. Let's understand that while it's true, salvation is all of grace. Salvation of all of, that's all of grace does not in any way diminish, diminish or dismiss the call to repentance. Turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Where do you think you find that? I'm mean, just a few chapters previous to our passage, beloved. That's found in Ezekiel. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? The call to turn and to obey or else. Or else what? Have you ever heard of the destruction of Jerusalem? 
Why do you think I have demolished Jerusalem? Because the word was brought to you, turn ye, turn ye, and ye would not turn. Will you learn your lesson or will you not? You see? Or else, this consequence, this severity of discipline. And that's part of the passage as well. And in its own way, beloved, it magnifies grace. How is it that the word can be preached and that people hear it and they actually turn and listen? What does that magnify? Magnifies the man and the person? Or does it magnify what God himself is able to make of a man and a woman so that they actually live and have ears to hear and eyes to see and a desire to follow the ways of the God. That doesn't diminish grace, beloved. That magnifies grace. When you consider out of what God makes such an hearer of his word, we find it in the passage of people of dry bones. Not in the bulletin. The vision of the dry bones. What the prophet saw, and that means not only what he saw, but what he saw, what, they what those dry bones represented, who they represented. What he was called to do, preach. Preach what? And the astonishing result. Life, you say, but life as a mighty army. That's instructive as well. The vision of the dry bones, what the prophets saw and what these bones then represented, who they represented, what he was called to do and in the calling what he was called to preach, and then this astonishing and wonderful result. Like the... Apostle John in the book of the Revelation, the prophet Ezekiel was given to see visions, visions that had to do with history, history as it centered about God's church, judgments upon the world and even the church as that church lived, and through that, those judgments in the end, salvation and Victory when all is said and done. It has been some time since Ezekiel has had a vision. As I stated, this vision occurs about a year and a few months following the destruction of Jerusalem. The last vision that Ezekiel had is found in chapter 8, and that vision runs from, chapters, from chapter 8 through 11, 8, 8, 9, 10, and 11, an extended vision. But that's a vision that took place prior to the destruction of Jerusalem about a month prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. In the interim between those two visions, chapter 8 through 11, and then the vision you find here in 37, there have been many a revelation, and the Spirit of God came unto to Ezekiel and said, Ezekiel, prophesy this and prophesy that. But the last vision he had is recorded in Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And a vision, of course, means that his body remains in location. 
but his mind is transported in a, what you might say almost a virtual reality, so it seems to his own mind as though he is bodily someplace else. In our text, he is bodily amongst in this valley with the, in his own mind, in the valley of the dry bones. In chapter 8, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, the Lord took him in his mind, as he's by the river Kibar in the land of Babylon, and transports him back to Jerusalem. So that he actually sees things that are happening in Jerusalem about a month before its destruction. And begins in chapter 8 and the sixth year in the sixth month. That is six years since he has been called to be a prophet. And just a few months, month or so before the destruction of Jerusalem. I was brought in the visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate that looketh towards the north. And then he is taken through the streets of the city. He starts at the gate of the city, and then he goes through the streets of the city, and he's given to see things and to hear things, but especially to see things. And he beholds a door, and then be, he goes in and beholds the wicked abominations that they do there. And there were people gathered in this room, in this house, and there were murals on the, and the walls that tied in with idolatries and with immoralities. It was really pornography in, in their time and they're going through some kind of, of exercise of incense and censers in the hands and so on and, he can, and they're worshiping the sun towards the east and so on. And he goes through the city and he sees all these transgressions and those who were leading these transgressions were the priests and the princes of the nation. You might say the, the office bearers and uh, so he gets, sees all, saw all this, and finally he comes to, the, to chapter 11, and the Spirit lifts me up and brings me to the east gate of the Lord's house. That's looking towards the rising of the sun, or the temple. And he sees this Jeazaniah and this Pelatiah, princes of the people. And he said, and God says to him, or the Spirit, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief, that is great evil, and give wicked counsel in this city, who say, it is not near. What is not near? What is not near, they said, is the judgment of God. I know Jeremiah has been preaching judgment, judgment, judgment. He's been doing that for 50 years, you know. And it hasn't fallen yet, has it? And we're the sons of Abraham, you know. We have a background of a certain orthodoxy. We have pedigree, spiritual pedigree. And God, you know, has made promises. We have nothing to fear. He just keeps preaching Judgment, 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 and it never falls. What's to worry? Let us build houses. This city is the cauldron. It's the pot, and we be the flesh. We're, we're the soup. We're what makes this city taste good to the Lord God. So here are the princes of the city, and they were given their time somewhat to idolatry, but they didn't forget the temple. They made sure they went to the temple as well sometime during the week, and they brought some sacrifices. You've got to keep them all happy, you know, including Jehovah God, because when you really need him, you want him to be there, don't you? When asked, what's the great attraction to idolatry? What's the great attraction? The immoralities you were permitted. Because all the idol gods, what their priests care about, is you bring the gifts and say that they are God and keep feeding them the gifts. And then you may go and live as you please. You brought them a certain allegiance, a certain recognition. You brought their priests the gifts they want. And now you may go out and wallow in your immoralities. But the worship of Jehovah God doesn't allow that, does it? 
he not only says worship me, he says, and also follow after holiness without which a man shall not see the Lord. None of this immorality, forsake your immorality. Too many restrictions, too many requirements, too many laws and commandments. We have to deny ourselves. So that's not going to be the heart of our, we'll give some time to that. In the meantime, we can pursue the idols as well. What about the judgments? No need to fear the judgment. Those are just words, you know. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And he lifts up his word in this chapter 11. And then you come to the conclusion of the vision in chapter 11. Verse 21. As for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord. And then this. Then did the cherubims... Those four cherubims you find in chapter 1, wheels within wheels, lifted up like, like flaming fires. Lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them, the chariots in which they stood. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. He was carried his glory, as it will, and a platform. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city, in the Mount of Olives, outside of the gates and the walls, Ichabod, beloved. That's what happens here. Ichabod. The glory has departed. God lifts up his presence from the Holy of Holies. The chair, the, the, that Ark of the Covenant means nothing anymore. Just a box. And he has withdrawn himself from the city. And now it's wide open. Vulnerable to the assault of Nebuzaradan, the general of Nebuchadnezzar. To knock down the gates finally after a long siege enter into the city and slaughter its inhabitants, young and old, without mercy, and then demolish the whole of the city. And the Spirit took me up and brought me back unto Chaldea to the captivity. That's how chapter 11 ends. The words of those other men ringing in his ears, we have nothing to worry about. Jeremiah just keeps preaching judgment. There's no judgment. The people of God, the people of God are we. And then there's prophecies that follow for a, a year. And then we read this in chapter 33, verse 21. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, this first band of captives, in the tenth month, in the fifth day of the month, that one who had escaped out of Jerusalem, took him a year to get from Jerusalem to the land of Babylon to Chaldea, who escaped out of Jerusalem, came to me saying, the city is smitten. And literally, the word is demolished. For all intents and purposes, it does not exist anymore. It's gone. And we read that Jeremiah is, as it were, stunned and is silent for a whole day. And then we read in the evening, after he that had escaped came, open my mouth, the Lord did, as in the, in the morning, and my mouth was open, and I was no more dumb, and the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, he begins again to prophesy. So he has received the news, you see, of the destruction of Jerusalem, and the proof that the words of Jeremiah were not empty words and in vain. And the people have come and they are at the point of despair. The remnant especially is at the point of 
despair. The words, of course, are what you find in verse 11 of our chapter. Our, home, our bones are dried, our hope is lost. We are cut off in our parts. We have been disinherited. We have broken our vows, and now God has cast us off, and there is no more future for us. Is there, Ezekiel? Tell us, tell us, tell us what is the word of the Lord. And comes this vision in answer, beloved, to that despair. The vision of the valley full of bone, not a few bones here and there, but piles of bones, and not skeletons as such laying out there, but the bones of the skeletons just scattered hither, thither, and in piles so that there was no rhyme or reason or system to them. And he caused me to pass by them round about, and there were very many laying in piles, and they were very dry. Even the marrow of the bones was gone. And the question, of course, whom do these bones represent? And, of course, the question the Lord God asked of Ezekiel is, Son of man, can these bones live? And the answer that Ezekiel gives is, from a certain point of view, Lord, why even state the obvious? Of course, these bones can't possibly live. They can't put themselves back together in any, any order, and they certainly can't simply rise up and walk about and feed themselves and what we call live. It's beyond thought, beyond imagination. The answer is obvious and self-evident, is it not? And Ezekiel knows, of course, that when the Lord God says, can these bones live, he's referring, of course, to Israel itself, not to the dead. He's not talking about the corpses that are strewn from Chaldea all the way back to Jerusalem. He's talking, he's talking about Israelites who now are alive. And the Israel that is now alive is as these dry bones from every, you might say, spiritual point of view. Having reference, first of all, to the carnal and the ungodly represented by those princes that were leading them in all kinds of idolatry and immoralities. But not only is this a reference, of course, to the Jewish nation, the majority of whom were carnal and, you might say, spiritually dead, but this has reference, of course, to the whole of humanity. It can be a description of man as he has fallen in sin from the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we have become, due to the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind has become, natural man, dry bones and cannot live. The question of the Lord, of course, with respect to these dry bones is, implication is, if I were to return Israel in its present state to the promised land, do you imagine, Ezekiel, that they would be turned to worship me and to be those who would fight the battle of faith and to be used in the establishment of my kingdom and the advance of my kingdom, the promised kingdom? Do you imagine there is such life in this Israel that is now in captivity? Thou knowest, Lord, could bring them back, and they would accomplish nothing with respect to the advancement of the kingdom that is promised. They are as dry bones. And beginning, of course, then with the carnal and what we call the reprobate element of the nation. 
but also can be referenced to the whole of mankind, as I have said. That's indicated, of course, by a passage such as Ephesians chapter chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, you have a description of what we call the doctrine of total depravity. And you, says the apostle to the church of Ephesus, composed largely of Gentiles who have been brought out of darkness and idolatry, and you, and then you have in italics, hath he quickened, made alive, but that's not in the original. Those words are not found until you get to, to verse, uh, verse 5. King James puts them ahead of time, but the original is, and you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, were in time past, ye walked according to the course of the world, and the prince of the power of the air, and the children of disobedience, we all had our conversation in time past, and the lusts of our flesh, the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others, spiritually dead. And you understand, beloved, to be spiritually dead doesn't mean simply that one is under the sentence of death. We've committed enough sins to put us under the sentence of death. To be sure, we're under the sentence of death, but that's not what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. Neither does it simply mean that one cannot save himself. We're under the sentence of death. We have a lot of corruption, and we can't save ourselves. To that, beloved, the Arminians agree. A man can't save himself. That's why you need Christ Jesus, and now I'm going to persuade you. I'm going to try to persuade you by this means and, and that means, maybe even by using music that has a, a, a staccato beat to stir you up emotionally, that uh, you ought to choose, choose for Jesus and, and save yourself somehow. The exercise of uh, freedom of the, of the will. No, beloved, that is not what this text has reference to either. To be spiritually dead means that one does not even desire salvation, not as salvation is properly defined. And salvation properly defined is not simply that one doesn't want to go to hell. I'd rather go to heaven. So I'll make a confession of Jesus as my Savior and admit that I'm a great sinner and hope that he forgives my sins and even pray for forgiveness of sins without leaving the way of sin. Beloved, salvation isn't simply to be delivered from the guilt of sin and then the curse and the, and the consequence of sin, the punishment of sin, but to be saved is to also be delivered from the power of sin, you see, and it means that one desires God to serve God, to submit to God, to forsake one's sin, and to seek God as the object of one's chief affection. And that's not natural man, beloved. If you accommodate him with salvation, it just means make a confession. You can be saved from the consequences of sin. You may find him left and right. But that's not salvation. Salvation means not only am I sorry for my sin, I make a confession. But Lord, deliver me from its rule that I may seek thy name and deny myself and submit to thy word and cast myself upon thy mercy. And when you define salvation in those terms, natural man wants no part of it. If you modify your definition of salvation, what it means to be a Christian, I may join your church, but not under those terms and in that definition. Cast myself upon the mercy of God and give up my Lord's days, or my, I should say my Sundays, and turn them into Lord's days? No, not at that price, not at that cost. That's natural man, beloved. 
there is no freedom of the will until something has occurred by the power of the Holy Spirit according to God's electing and marvelous grace. So you have these dry bones representing in its own way the whole of fallen mankind, natural man. Can these bones live? Lord, thou knowest they cannot live, not apart from some miraculous, wonderful power. But I want to point out, beloved, that these dry bones don't only represent those who are spiritually dead. These bones also represent those who have spiritual life. These bones at this time represented even that remnant of Israel who were believers. And there was that remnant left, of course. They may have been weak in faith and they may have been negligent in their godliness. But for all that, they were believers and children of God. And they are the ones, of course, who come with the question and who say, our bones are dried, our, our hope is lost, we are cut off in our parts. That's not the ungodly and the unbelieving carnal. That's the remnant, the spiritually alive. They're the ones who are in despair. Our bones are dried. Our hope is lost. We are cut off in our parts. How is it that those who are spiritually alive can be likened to dry bones? In this sense, beloved, we cannot bring forth spiritual seed. When it comes to the bringing forth of spiritual seed, we are dry and impotent. It's true that from believers comes spiritual seed. But that's not our spiritual seed. That's God's work who makes the seed, the child that's developing in the womb, alive according to his covenantal mercy and his power. That's a wonder of grace. That's why in the form for the administration of baptism, you have a prayer, prayers, two prayers actually mentioned with respect to these children may be children of thy covenant in whom thou, they, they may forsake sin and so on. That's a, a matter of grace. We bring forth children, but they are brought forth, conceived in the womb, beloved, spiritually dead. Every one of us was conceived and began to develop spiritually dead. Why is there spiritual life? Because God is the God of covenantal mercy. And according to his covenantal promises, he says, to the children I give to you, not necessarily every one, but to children I give to you, I will come with my Holy Spirit, as with John the Baptist, I work in the heart of that little one even as that little one is developing and give to that little one spiritual life. And baptism will speak of that as well, that already the little one has the Holy Spirit and spiritual, according to my covenant, covenantal mercies, promises, and power, which, beloved, is why there is hope even given to the mothers of Israel who, in the carrying of the little ones in the wombs, there's a miscarriage and there is a, is a grief some kind called a silent grief and a little one has been taken from a mother maybe even full term and let's take the body to the grave and the arms are, are empty and there's great, this is great grief and emptiness of, of, of heart and, and mind and never forgotten by that, that mother, maybe some here this evening. But the word of the Lord is he knows even those little ones were his by his mercy and his, and his love have been given them Life And they will be seen again in, in heaven and glory, not as a little child, but as fully developed. So we read the great promise of Isaiah, you know, the, the shepherd who carries the lambs in his, in his bosom and gently leads those who are with young. They too are his lambs already in the womb. But by the work of a 
powerful transforming grace in which he has breathed into them already and given them this life. And that, beloved, is the despair here of these, of these believing parents, you see. Does the demolishing of Jerusalem and the exile are being driven out of the land and cast out mean that God has loosed from his covenant promises? It sure appears that way. We were those who were faithless in our vows and so on. And now he may say, I'm done with my vow too. You have loosed me from my vow, and I'm not going to give to you any more spiritual seed. And beloved, if he does not work by his grace, there is a dry bone. They can bring forth no spiritual church of the future, and not the seed of the woman either. There is no hope. We're done. If that's what this judgment means, God has done with us, and he may save us as a lot, ourselves as a lot, the brand out of the burning, but we are cut off, and there is no hope. Not even the seed of the woman will come. Where is the hope of our salvation, you see? And to that great question, to that great emotion of despair, the Lord comes with this vision in the valley of the dry bones. And he gives answer not only to the despair of this elect remnant that is found in our passage, but also to Ezekiel himself, because there's evidence in the book that when Ezekiel saw the sins of which the people were guilty and they persisted in, and then God's anger and displeasure, he himself all but despaired. So that you, you read in chapter 9, verse 8, uh, while, they, while they were being slain in this vision, the Lord was slaying the people in, in the vision that I fell upon my face and cried and say, O oh Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? Shall none be left? Are we done, Lord? And then you find the same thing, you know, in chapter 11, which we read, because one of those office bearers is slain, suddenly dies. And I fell down upon my face and cried with a loud voice, and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel, even of the elect, so they can bring forth no covenant seed? We're done? Is that it, Lord? And the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. And now you have the love of the Lord's answer to the questions of the elect remnant and of the prophet himself at the point of despair. He sees there were very many, and lo, they were very dry. And the Lord says to me, Son of man, can these bones live? No, Lord, of course they can't, not of themselves, without a wonderful working power somehow. He says to me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Why is there hope for these dry bones? Because as we read further in the passage, I will cause breath to enter into them and they shall live. I will lay sinews upon them and bring flesh upon them and cover their skin. And I will perform a, if you will, a resurrection wonder over these dry bones. But, beloved, what I want to note in connection with that is that while the, 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 the um, de declaration of the Lord is, I'm a God of faithfulness and I am a God of power, 
and I will keep my word, and you'll see a wonder that will make you stand in awe. He says that in the context of verse 4, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's important, beloved, and that's a necessary addition to which our attention must be drawn. You don't simply read here, the question is asked of Ezekiel, and he answers, thou knowest, and then you go right to verse 5, and the Lord says, behold, I'm going to do a mighty work. I'm going to raise, give life to these dry bones. He's going to give life to these dry bones, but not without the insertion of what you find in verse 4. Prophesy upon these bones and say to them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Notice, again he saith unto me. And that's not just indicating, well, he has just spoken to him, and now he speaks again. But he says again in the context of Ezekiel's having almost given up all hope and at the point of despair. Why are these words brought to the prophet himself in addition to the nation of Israel? Because the prophet, as I said, was at the point of despair and says, Lord God, why should I keep prophesying? What's the fruit? They continue in their sins, in the way of unrepentance. They're not turning. They keep walking right in the way of ungodliness. Why keep preaching? Jeremiah preached for 50 years, Lord. With what fruit? I'll tell you what fruit. This Jerusalem was destroyed. It wasn't a stone left upon a stone, and the inhabitants were slaughtered. That was the fruit of his preaching, Lord. Why go on? I'm done. Oh, no, you're not, Ezekiel. I am the Lord God, and you're my prophet. And I said to you, prophesy. And I will use your word as I will to use the word that I put in your mouth and bring to the people. I will, you will do your part as I call you, and then I will take care of what I alone am able to do. Prophesy, Ezekiel, and speak to these dry bones. One is reminded, beloved, of the passage that you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made in effect. And now this, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. For it has pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe by the foolishness of preaching, as the world calls it foolishness. You're preaching to us a man who died on a cross, and you're telling us that's victory? That doesn't sound like victory to me. That sounds like defeat. It sounds as though the enemies of this man had the victory and put him to death. Until, beloved, the gospel informs you who this son of man was who died in the cross, not simply a son of man, but the Son of God, and what the Son of God accomplished on that cross is the atonement for sin and sinners, and was able to bear the infinite wrath of God in the place of all those who had been given unto him. That's the gospel truth, and you may count it foolishness, but it has pleased God by the wisdom, by the power of this preaching to save them that believe. And that truth, beloved, is underscored here in Ezekiel chapter 30, 
7. Preach thou son of man, and say unto them, Hear the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord has first of all to do with God's own sovereignty and God's own power, what he alone is able to accomplish, to breathe life I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live in sinews, and so on. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise and a shaking, and then bones came together, bone to his bone, and the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them. So as he's standing there, and he's preaching, and he's talking about the sovereignty of God and the power of God, this begins to happen. But, beloved, he did not only preach, you may be sure, this is not the whole of the word that he has to bring, he's also preaching Repentance, the call to repentance. I say that according to the context, because this is exactly why the judgment fell upon the house of the city of Jerusalem and of the whole of Judah. We read of that, beloved, in chapter 33, where you read in 30, Thou son of man, the children of thy people are talking about thee by the walls and so on, because he's preaching and they know this prophet is still in their midst and he's saying all these things and they're talking about what they hear and then they say, let's go hear what this man has to say in verse 30. And then 31 of chapter 33. And they come unto thee as the people cometh and they sit before me as my people and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For where their mouth is say, they show much love. That is, much attraction to the word. My, what a wonderful sermon. What a wonderful bunch of words that was, sir. But their heart continueth right after their covetousness. They continue right on the way of the path that they were warned against and called to turn from. They will not do them. They hear thy words. They will not do them. They will not turn themselves, turn themselves, turn themselves. And they are under judgment. Why keep preaching, Lord? Because I am the Lord and know how to save my, my own. When I desire to save them and will to save them, you bring the word and I will bring life to these bones, you see. And what is repentance all about? Well, beloved, it has to do with what we find in verse 30, chapter 36, verse 31. We're in chapter 37, just prior to our chapter 36, verse 31. We read, there comes a time when they shall remember their evil ways and their doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. The word is going to take hold and they will loathe themselves. That's repentance, beloved. Repentance has to do with finding, loathing has to do with finding repugnant something that you once found attractive a man left in his sin, and by the power of sin, snared by sin, finds things that are repugnant, attractive. It's as though he calls roadkill the meat he wants to eat. And then the Spirit comes. The Word is preached. And the call is to repentance and to turn. And the Word takes hold by the Spirit. Talk to a man who has been in prison. I'm writing one. He talks about his conversion and he talks about now finding things that he once found attractive to be reviling and repugnant. And what he once found repugnant, he now finds attractive, the things of the word and of, of the truth. That's the work of the Spirit, you see. Repentance has to do with saying, 
I loathe myself that I even find those things delightful and attractive. Lord, forgive, have mercy upon me, turn me that I may be turned. That's repentance, and that's, you see, what God will work by his word when the spirit begins to work and take hold of a man. And that begins to happen. But it says here, there was no breath in them. So these bones come together, you know, the spiritual, the foot bone is connected to the what is it, the shin bone, and the shin bone is collected, or the leg bone, I believe it was, and then to the thigh bone, and then to the hip bone, and then to the backbone, and finally to the head bone, they say, in the spiritual. What's interesting about that spiritual is there's a refrain that's said again and again and again, thus saith the word of the Lord, thus saith the word of the Lord, and it nails it when it says, thus saith the word of the Lord. This is by the power of the word, that is, as the Spirit honors that word and uses that word, and as the Lord God makes a people who become attentive to that word. Without the work of the Spirit, a man isn't attentive to the word. He may listen to it, but his heart is hardened. I'm not going in that way. Not Christianity, not that kind of Christianity, not that kind of Christian life. I'm not going to deny myself those things. When the Spirit takes hold, there's a whole different mind. I now find those things repugnant. Forgive me, Lord, for even desiring those things and by thy grace turn me, that I may pursue those things that have thy approval. It says here, but there was no breath in them. The preaching can only do so much, you understand. The parable of the sower of the seed. It did quite a bit from a certain point of view when it fell on that shallow soil, if you recall, and a plant sprang up. But it had no deepness of root. And when the when the requirements came and the testing and having to bear reproach, we read that it withered away under the heat, never bearing any fruit. Apparently making a confession, but the heart had not been changed. There was no breath in it, if you will, no real spiritual life, had no deepness of root. They were not all of us. They went out from among us because they were not all of us. They put on a show for a while like Demas, who followed the Apostle Paul, and then we read, he hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He sprung up with a certain outward appearance, but he had not been transformed. He heard the word, had an excitement. Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man. Say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds and breathe. O breathe upon these slain that they may live. And the Holy Spirit comes, you see. A man must be born again, as Christ said to Nicodemus. And by the power of the Spirit, a man is born again. And then one hears the words of Christ Jesus, you see, the gospel. And now one sees. And now one hears. And says, this is truth, and this is wisdom. And this must be forsaken and put aside. And this is the way I must run, walk, and I must run in the ways of God's commandments. And so I prophesy, and the breath came into them, and they lived. And they stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Behold the work of the Lord by the power of the word, as that word is honored by the working of the Holy Spirit. What God can do, and alone can do, and does do by the power of his grace, but always in the way, beloved, of the honoring of the word, and working in a people, a people such a way that they actually now hear the word with new ears, and pay heed to the word. And what's true, beloved, of a people who now hear the word and pay heed to God's word? 
they live, but they live as a mighty army. That's a selective word, you understand, an exceeding great army. Not just a multitude of people, though there was a great multitude here. This has to do everything with the New Testament age, beloved, with the preaching of the of the gospel and the spirit honoring the words of the apostles so that on the first day of Pentecost you read the 3,000 heard the word and said, what, what's our calling? Repent. And they repented and were baptized, 3,000 of them. And the next day, 5,000 more with families. They were, were men. So the great ingathering begins throughout the whole New Testament age as the spirit God honors the preaching of the gospel. And this New Testament church beloved becomes a mighty army, the church militant. This is not simply reference to the Jews who were in, the, in, in exile and then brought back from exile to Babylon. They did not become a great army. That is a spiritual force to be reckoned with. They came back and their being brought back indicated God was going to keep his word of promise. But when they came back, they simply survived, if you will. They were preserved and they diminished over the four centuries, between, between, actually about five centuries between the being brought back to the time that Caesar Augustus makes the decree and the Messiah is, is born. But the church survived. There was the elect remnant, but old and decrepit as Anna, Anna and Simeon himself, if you will, and Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then comes the death of the Messiah and the resurrection, the outpouring of the Spirit, beloved. And the New Testament church becomes as a mighty army. And a mighty army is not simply that which in the end defends the truth. We aren't called simply to defend the truth. Yes, keep the, keep the truth defended. And it's wonderful, you know, to have a sword you can bring out and you can, you can examine its sharpness. But it's not simply to, and then put back. And, and, and once a week we'll take it out and we'll look at it and examine, my, what a sharp sword we have. Now let's put it back in the sheath and, and live our life. The whole point of the sword of the Spirit, beloved, is to use it not only to defend and preserve truth, but to go take the offensive and to become a power that goes out into the world and preaches the gospel and sets souls free from captivity, you see, and has victory after victory after victory. That's the New Testament age. Sometimes we lose sight of that because the church in the remnant is small and evil is great and it seems persecution of the church has diminished her and so on. And what can such a little body do? But do you understand, beloved, that in the 21st century the church still survives? Rome doesn't. Caesar Augustus is long dead. Not Christ Jesus. He's in heaven on the throne, isn't he? He's alive. And his church, called his bride this morning, still exists as well. And still, beloved, when she preaches the gospel and goes out into the world, the gospel has victories. The slaves, the bond slaves of Satan who have been elected by God for eternity are set free. In accordance with the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit does the work, but he honors the word and sets them free. We are a great army from that point of view. Not with military sense, but it's what you read, you know, in Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 10, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and 
and a word that brings into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Notice obedience to Christ. They live, they hear, they obey. And having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Notice, bringing into captivity every thought and pulling down these, these uh, strongholds, the weapons of our warfare having to do with the word of God as it's entrusted to the care of the church and the witness of the church. And remember, beloved, Christ Jesus has not suffered one loss. Every soul that he has bought by his blood has been found and nation after nation, and set free. And no one is able to pluck them out of his Father's hand. They may stumble and fall, but they're always retrieved and restored, and they are saved. Satan suffers defeat after defeat after defeat. Don't forget that. And the Church of Christ still exists in the 21st century. We must remind ourselves, beloved, in these last days, the power of evil, of unrighteousness in our nation, Mounts and mounts and mounts in, in ways that we never thought we could even see. And one chafes against the unrighteousness, but one sees their power. Who can withstand all this evil, all this unrighteousness? They're going to have the last word, aren't they? Why even go on? What hope have we? We're just a few. That is, the church is universal compared to the world and the anti-Christian, anti-righteous spirit that is emerging. We're as good as done, aren't we? No, beloved, we're not as good as done. The Lord has the way of still bringing to his church victories in the witness, even of those who may be persecuted, saving the souls of those loved, because he is Jehovah. He is the God of mercy. He is the God of faithfulness. He is the God of power. He's put us under the rule of this king who sits enthroned, and he, beloved, is the one who is able to bring life to the dry bones by his power. He is the dry bones raising power, and he is the dry bones one who has mercy. And, beloved, he's able to make out of us instruments of his, of his power and, and of his witness. If God be for us, in the end, who can be against us? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And then you have Psalter number 407 and that wonderful phrase, Go forth in his service and strong in his might to conquer all evil and stand for the right because in the end you belong to him the victory is ours whether the world knows it or not we must know it and go forth by faith in this great Jehovah Amen For thy word we give thee thanks for the reminder of who thou art thou dry bone giving life God and give us life, beloved our Father, that we may show ourselves to be the bride of the beloved and do his service, use weak means to accomplish good things until he is pleased to come again. In Jesus' name, amen.